Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day in the capital is Nick Bullen. Nick is the CEO of Spun Gold TV and the founder and editor-in-chief of True Royalty TV. He is also a multi-award winning television producer. Uh, Nick, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Hi Scott, thank you for having me on the programme. It's a real honour, so thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves with us, Nick. And normally on the show, we dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we begin with that um, because it's proven to be one of the more significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But just how has it affected you and your operations within the television industry? Do you know, Scott, it's been incredibly challenging. I'm sure everyone you talk to would say the same thing. Um, I think maybe only the uh, the wine merchants and the hand sanitizing manufacturers have probably benefited from um, from COVID. But I think everyone else has found it incredibly difficult. I mean, for us personally, um, it's it's a, it's a bit of a game of two halves. In that, Spun Gold, my TV production business, has found it incredibly challenging. Um, you know, in March when the lockdown came. All TV production um, pretty well stopped overnight. And um, we managed to make a couple of very small things during lockdown that were sort of lockdown specific. But really, you know, all our teams stopped. We had to furlough a lot of the young. We were having to find ways of keeping the senior staff in work. We were, you know, it was incredibly difficult. And, you know, back in March, April, I was looking at my cash flow for the year and thinking there was every chance we could be going bust um, in the autumn. I mean, thankfully, we're still standing and things are beginning to, to lift again, but who knows what's going to happen over the coming weeks. But, you know, the, for, for Spundle, it was very, very challenging. And for my other friends and colleagues in the independent TV industry and in the broadcasters, it's been a very, very difficult time. Conversely, with True Royalty, um, it's been a rather good time. And um, True Royalty is um, a streaming service dedicated to programs about royalty across the world and across history and across the ages. And um, it's, a, it's a global TV platform. It's a sort of Netflix for royal TV shows. And um, the, uh, as you've probably read, the audiences for streaming channels have just gone through the roof during this period. I mean, they were growing anyway, but this has accelerated everybody. You know, we, years, you know, in March, most of us had never heard of Zoom or, you know, Google Hangouts or whatever. Uh, and certainly lots of people weren't streaming TV savvy. That speeded up enormously. And as a result, um, our, the subscription numbers at True Royalty have grown exponentially. Um, and we're in the middle of a big fundraising round at the moment. And we've found that a lot of um, private equity funds, venture capitalists, family offices who were looking at investing a year ago mm. perhaps wouldn't have looked at something like a streaming channel, but now uh, have seen, seen the benefits. So it, I sort of am riding two horses here. It's, you know, I'm um, spun gold. It's been tough. True royalty, you know what, I have to say we've probably slightly benefited from the whole story. And can you see that trend continuing for some time to come, particularly given the Prime Minister's announcement last week that this new normal that we're living under could well be in place until March at the very least? Yes, I think so. I think the, the, the sort of um, the trend um, that we're seeing will continue. The only difference is, I think, um, and I, anyway, I'm talking here very much as a small businessman, um, I think people have just become incredibly frustrated with um, our political leaders and in many ways our, our scientific leaders in that a lot of what's coming out just doesn't appear to have any logic to it. So, you know, um, I'm making a whole series at the moment with uh, within the hospitality industry. Mm. And the people that are in the hospitality industry 
don't just cannot see why they are being penalised in the way they are. You know, when they represent perhaps three percent of cases coming out of pubs and bars and restaurants. So I think the way that the way the trend will change is I think there will be a pushback. I think people will say we have to find a way of continuing our businesses. We have to find a way of moving forward. And you know, I only read you know what else when I read in the papers. But it appears that even within government, within the cabinet, there is that um, divide in mm. that, you know, is it is it saving lives and um, saving the health of the nation at all costs? And, you know, I I think there will be a pushback. I don't think, I don't see us having a national lockdown again, nor do I see people complying economically in quite the same way. I mean, mm. just as an example, um, one of my TV shows during Spun Gold is a show called The Real Full Monty. And we have men and women doing The Full Monty, celebrity men and women doing The Full Monty to raise awareness of male and female cancers, mm. um, you know, sort of testicular prostate breast cancer. Um, and I was talking to one of the breast cancer charities the other day. Three million women between March and August have not um, had their breast cancer, their, their breast you know, check, your mammogram, mm. or cervical cancer smear. You know, how many of those three million women are going to die as a result of missing um, those checks? And I think it's things like that that are, people are now beginning to say, this is not acceptable. We can't continue in that vein. So um, uh, long-winded way of saying the trend, sure, I think well, this is the new normal, Boris is right, but whether we're all prepared to comply in quite the same way that we did in March, April, um, I don't think we will, to be frank. I can see exactly where you're coming from because it is asking an awful lot of leaders within many different industries to keep sort of adapting on the spot to changing guidelines and changing circumstances when the information out there isn't always clear. And sometimes the logic, as you say, is very, very questionable. We've seen that already um, with a lot of discontent in the build up to schools returning, of course, in uh, September. And now we're seeing it again with the hospitality sector, as you've uh, rightly said there. And it is having an impact on people's mental health as well, keeping these restrictions in place for a long time. And that's also something very important within leadership that's been thrust back into the limelight of the national discussion during this time. Enormously, Scott, enormously. I mean, we, um, obviously within our TV programs, we often sort of highlight sort of mental health issues. Mm. And, um, you know, again, with true royalty, um, you can see that the younger royals, particularly the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and with their Heads Together campaign, uh, are addressing sort of mental health in in a way that it, you know people haven't spoken about it for years. You know, it is now absolutely front and centre. And I know during um, the sort of height of lockdown, we were we at Spun Gold were looking at whether we could um, keep staff on. We had to put some of the senior team on redundancy notice. I mean, fortunately, we haven't had to make them redundant. But you know that these are people who you know in in my specific cases were either going through, already going through divorces and were trying to find ways of sort of funding their, you know, the houses they lived in. Another person was moving into a new house with a young family and was trying to sort of get their mortgage and start themselves, you know, on the, on the sort of uh, the property ladder. And the impact that me saying to them that they may be about to lose their job is clearly enormous. And these, these, um, these are all things that were sort of outside of our control. You know, in a normal world, if I'm not getting shows commissioned and if I'm not making a profit, then fine, that's my fault and that's my issue. But all of this was outside of our control, and it, I think it fell on the, me as a leader and other leaders around the, the country to find ways of protecting their staff, keeping them safe, and ensuring that physically and mentally. Um, they were in a good place. I mean, I think a number of the smaller independent producers like myself worked together to try and ensure that the young within our teams, and there were a lot of young freelance workers working in television, that we looked after them because the freelancers, as I'm sure your listeners have heard, Mm. um, had nobody protecting them. They weren't part of the furlough system. They hadn't made enough money to perhaps have sort of savings sitting behind them. So there were sort of lots of different layers of... uh, challenges to supporting your team as they both physically and um, also um, on a mental health level. So I think hugely important. I mean, it's continuing now. The great friends of mine who are self-employed, many of them have have earned zero money 
since March. I mean, literally zero money. You know, if you're someone who runs a wedding venue, um, you know, if there have been no weddings through there, they have their money. They still have their staff to pay. They still have their overhead to cover. Mm. And I know a number of people who are going into the winter not knowing how they're going to make it into next year. Um, and I think it's sort of, uh, again, back to my point about you know, saving lives at all costs, there is a, there is the, the implication across society is enormous. And we as business owners, leaders of anything, be they communities uh, or organizations, have a responsibility, I believe, uh, to try and help the individuals affected. Mm. And there are a lot of young people out there, aspiring leaders within their professions that may be incredibly downhearted about the economic impact of COVID-19 and what that's going to do to their employment prospects. And for them, of course, somebody who's enjoyed um, a career such as yourself um, is a huge inspiration because, um, if you don't mind me, of course, uh, telling the listeners, Nick, I'm sure that you uh, became the youngest ever editor of uh, This Morning uh, back um, during your days at Granada TV. Um, you've had some incredible success with Spun Gold and also True Royalty now as well, um, winning numerous awards along the way. So just for those younger people that may well be tuning into this, um, that might be a little bit downbeat at this time, what is your message to them to really pick them up and get them on the road to success in whatever they may be doing? Well, it's very kind of you to say all of that, but I think, yeah, you know, for me, I had great mentors and people who gave me a break and really supported me. So I was very lucky. And I think, you know, that's, um, you know, naming names, it was sort of Richard Nadley and Judy Finnegan, who were the presenters of this morning, believed in me, even though I was a very young, inexperienced TV producer, they gave me the opportunity to, to, to run their show. And a chap who some of your listeners may have heard of, a guy called Steve Hewlett, mm. who was my boss at Carlton TV, very sadly died a few years ago, but you know was well-known on Radio 4 and presented the media. So Steve was the best boss I ever had when I was at Carlton TV. Uh, and they believed in me and they supported me. And I think that's what I would say to any young aspiring leaders or anybody out there who's young and sort of trying to break it in, in any industry. Try and find that uh, person you believe in and that person who will um, support you and guide you and give you that break um, and um, with that person you need to be really honest you need to you know when you screw up and we all do put your hands up and say you know what I screwed up because I think when trying to cover things up never works you've got to you face the music and uh, and deal with it and that's something that even now sort of 30 years on in my position sort of running different companies, um, when it goes wrong, I'm prepared to say the buck stops with me. Um, mm. I think the, the, there's a terrible culture of trying to let sort of bad news flow down, a blame culture within industries and, and different organizations. And if you want to be the boss, whether it's the youngest editor of this morning or whether you want to run ITV, um, then be prepared to say, you know, I'm the boss, the buck stops with me, and um, we're not going to accept a blame culture. So I think that's one of those things. Be prepared to stand up like that. The other big one I would say is, and I've said this to a lot of the young who are working for us now, is um, I found across my career there are a lot of highs and a lot of lows. There's hardly anything in the middle. And, you know, if you look at my career, it is either peaks or troughs. There's not a lot of sort of uh, balance running through the center of it. And I think you slightly have to just accept that. And you, when you're in those troughs and those deep, deep lows, no one else is going to help you get out of it. You've got to do it. It's got to be you that's got to dig deep and bring yourself out of it. Uh, and when you're, when you're high, don't forget that, you know, you have been low and still be sort of gracious and supportive of those um, that you're working with. And I think that was the best bit of advice I was given was accept the highs, accept the lows, and just realize there's probably not much in the middle. Um, and if you can ride, ride those waves, then you'll be fine. I think there are so many important things to take away from that. The second point there, of course, being humble in uh, the times where things are going well, but also being brave and being persistent in the times of adversity to make sure that you can still get out of those troughs and get back to where you were before, but also in recognising that that is likely to, uh, to come again. But also the lack of a blame culture as well. We need to do away with this blame culture to allow people to take responsibility and also learn and develop because leadership, ultimately, a large part of it, whether 
whether we're running a business or doing anything, is ultimately trial and error, isn't it? And things will go right, things will go wrong. And it's about embracing the learning curves when they do come and using those to improve rather than blaming each other for it. Absolutely. There's a, there's a brilliant boss I had, another great, great leader, a guy called David Liderman. And David was my boss at Granada TV. Uh, he went on to run ITV. He's on the BBC um, Trust. He, he set up all three media. You know, he's a sensationally gifted producer, but also a brilliant um, leader. And David said to me when I was very young, um, just play the long game. And he said, you know, essentially, normally, everything works out in the end. Um, and play the long game. Uh, you know, the, you can, you, whatever industry you're in, hopefully you will be in it for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and if you if you have that uh, long term view, it makes life much much more bearable for all the things you and I have just talked about. Scott. You know, and you go back to True in the work that I do with the royal family. Um, they are the perfect example of it in terms of sort of you know leadership monarchy. That's sort of, you know, the ultimate leadership. Um, the British royal family plays uh, you know takes a view of the world in sort of hundred. 100-year blocks, you know, maybe even 150-year blocks. Look at the, the pitfalls that the British monarchy has had over its 1,000-year history. And they're not thinking about how do we deal with this year or how do we deal with next year. They're looking at what does the world look like 100 years from now. And, you know, um, so the Queen, probably one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known in many ways, um, I'm told, doesn't operate a short-term view. Hers is a very long-term view. She's She's looking at the monarchy that her son will inherit, her grandson will inherit, but perhaps even more importantly, she's looking at the sort of monarchy her great-grandson, Prince George, will inherit. And I think that's a hugely useful bit of advice. Is, you know, back to David Lindemann, play the long game, think ahead, don't think short-term. And if we sort of finish up with um, a little bit of an emphasis on thinking ahead, I really would like to talk about the future, Nick, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because we know in the short term, at least, we're going to have to continue to persist with the new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. And hopefully during this uh, next um, 12 months, we'll have a working vaccine in place and be able to leave COVID-19 behind forever. But whatever happens with regards to that, what is next, do you think, for yourself, for Spongold TV and for True Royalty TV? And what is next for television as a whole, do you feel? Well, <laughs> big, big questions. And I wish I knew. But I think just taking them in their blocks, um, I think, you know, the in terms of Spongold TV, it's about finding um, ways of making our shows within this environment. You know, we've got shows that have big audiences. We've got shows that need us to go into people's homes and transform their lives. We've got shows that are shooting overseas. These are different dynamics required to each show. And it's about finding a way through. It's It's about not panicking as individual local lockdowns come in. It's about not reacting immediately as a teacher to the latest change, whether it's rule of six or whatever it may be. Um, it's about saying, and it's again an advice I'd give to, to the, your younger listeners, is you know, there is always a way through. There is always an answer. Just step back. How can we make this show? Look at the bigger picture and you will find a way through it. And even if you can't make that show, there's probably a different sort of show you can make. So I think for Spongebob, it's about finding different ways of making television. And television's evolved you know, over the years when, you know, entertainment has went, suddenly uh, you were able to speak on camera. We had to find a new way of making, you know, you know sort of making movies then. Is that we, have, we just have to be prepared to evolve as a business within that system. I think for True Royalty, it feeds back now to your third question about television as a whole. Um, streaming is the future. There is no doubt about it. Look at the speed at which people are adopting Amazon, Netflix, True Royalty in our case, Curiosity Stream, Crunchyroll. Streaming is the future. If um, and, and I think for, for True Royalty, we've got to make sure that we stay uh, on the crest of that wave and that we um, can raise enough money. And raising money in this time is difficult and hard. But you know the the people we're talking to now see that streaming is the future and see that you either operate as one of the super 
uh, um, streamers, be it Amazon, Netflix, Apple, whatever, Disney Plus, or you go super niche. And super niche are things like Japanese Japanese anime like Crunchyroll or super fan stuff like True Royalty for, for royal fans. So we need to just find ways uh, of riding that wave and raising money uh, again in the new normal. Um, and then I think that's the thing that feeds most ultimately to television as a whole. Uh, there will always be a place for the linear broadcasters, be they BBC or ITV, um, and those great shared moments, whether it's a royal wedding or whether it's you know the strictly final um, you know, sort of Christmas. I mean, we all want those great, big, classic TV moments. But my view is that uh, the traditional model of television uh, is a thing of the past, and we are now into a new age of television. And whether you're a TV producer, a TV broadcaster, or you're selling ad space, you've got to accept life's moved on. In the same way that when uh, we went from three or four standard TV channels to the explosion of Sky, and we all had hundreds of channels in our in our sitting rooms. Now you can access TV anywhere, anytime, any program. You know, literally, it is a brand new age of television. And if you don't accept that, and if you don't embrace that, that's the future, then you're a busted fly. It's certainly going to be a changing time for the industry and it's something we'll certainly be keeping an eye on with interest over the course of the next few months as it does start to uh, to take shape. And I certainly wish uh, you and your businesses, Nick, all the luck in the world in seizing on the opportunities that will be there. And I actually think, just given how inspiring it's been having you join us on the programme today, it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and welcome you back onto our show just to see how things are coming along and we can just reassess what's changed in the time between. I'd love to, Scott, and thank you for having me on, and um, uh, to the good luck to all of your, your listeners. It's a tough time, but we will get through it. We certainly will, um, Nick. Um, thank you ever so much, of course, for leaving that message for the listeners, and do also take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners that are tuning into the programme today. Um, Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it makes a real, real difference in saving lives. It was an immense pleasure to welcome Nick Bullen onto our programme today, CEO of Spungold TV and founder and editor-in-chief of True Royalty TV. Um, Next on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held a number of positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and served as the the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all of those who can, uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, 
why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, uh, great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I 
wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it uh, rightly so um, now was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister particularly perhaps uh, when you were home secretary well it was but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures right. uh, I was the home secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those 
national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from 
the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the 
Jewish community so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.